Hello and welcome to another unexciting episode of Hashtag Pistons. I am Joe, your host, and uh, yeah, we could jump right into it. So um, my guess is this will be up on Wednesday morning. Once again, the plan is still to try and have it be Tuesdays and Thursdays most of the time, but it just worked out to be more convenient to just do it now because um, there is the game Tuesday night or Monday night, obviously. So then, And then I had to be up pretty early to do something this morning, so... Um, I decide I'm going to go to bed after doing the recap, and then I'll just do it today. So it'll all work out fine. So it should be Wednesday morning. Um, so the Pistons played on Monday night, obviously, losing to the Pelicans uh, in a game that, I mean, on one hand, it's on one hand it's hard to be too upset because you wanna, you lost a close game on the road to a team that is pretty good. The Pelicans are not great, but they're certainly not. They're a real team, for sure. And um, given how injured the Pistons are, you know, the bar has to be set a little bit lower. And so that's frustrating. I, that's less frustrating, but the thing that is frustrating about it is that the Pelicans sort of made a few bad mistakes slash some things kind of broke the Pistons' way, I suppose. And the end result was that the Pistons had a chance in a game that they probably shouldn't have had a chance in. And that makes it a little bit extra frustrating that they weren't able to pull it out. Just There are some gaps. I mean, whether it be Anthony Davis hurting his ankle and missing the fourth quarter, the fact that DeMarcus Cousins was completely out of the game mentally for most of the game, uh, just there were several things that the Pistons had a real opportunity to win a game that they probably shouldn't have, and that makes it a little extra frustrating that you lose. But I, in the end, though, it really is still just kind of, you lost by three points on the road to a team that's a good team, or at least not a terrible team. I, I shouldn't say a good team. They're not that good, but they're a real team. So it's hard to be too disappointed about that. Um, as far as the actual play, Avery Bradley is a big one who people have been watching lately. And I mostly am coming away with it as a positive. I know that some people are not doing that, but um, his jump shot is just straight up. It's been way off since he came back from being hurt. He finally seemed to find the range. He played awesome defense. People, that was one thing, a lot of people were ragging on him after the game. And it's not unfair to rag on him. He didn't play great offensively. He did fish with 24 points on 24 equivalents, which is, that's kind of another thing that he's taken so many shots. But, and he really played great defense. He guarded Drew Holiday for most of the night. Holiday in 44 minutes. Holy crap. I did not realize Holiday played that many minutes. But regardless, Holiday had just 14 points on, I believe, 20 equivalents with three assists against seven turnovers. So Holiday really had a rough night offensively, and that's largely because Avery Bradley was defending him. So that was good to see. Second game in a row where Avery Bradley has really put forth a great defensive effort, and he seemed to finally find his jump shot in the second half. So as long as he's now sort of found his jumper going forwards, then that'd be great. And also be, I mean, it just it'd be a huge boost to the team, and they because they could not have him missing the shots that he's he'd been missing. So um, obviously the way the game finished was not ideal for him, but we'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, the other really good thing from last night is Andre Drummond looked healthy, he looked spry, he looked crisp, he looked ready to go essentially, which is good. Obviously he missed two out of the last three games, and then the one game he played in Philly, he really did not look right. Um, he looked a little bit hobbled with his bruised rib, 
and uh, or ribs. I don't know if it was one or if it was multiple, but regardless, he didn't he didn't look quite right. And you know when you do when you miss a game and then you play in the game, don't look right, and then miss the next game again. There's always a little bit of a worry that this you know thing that's originally said to be basically just a boo boo. Um, there's a worry that that maybe is going to become something worse than that. And last night should have pretty much ended any thought of that being the case because he he looked just fine. Um, he was sloppy with his passes throughout a lot of the night. He ended up with four turnovers with three assists, which isn't like the worst thing in the world. But just even not counting the ones that ended up being turnovers, he just his passes were not as accurate as they often are. Um, like for instance, he's generally pretty good at you know when he's passing to a shooter. He's generally quite good at hitting them right in the pocket so he can catch and shoot really easily. And he just, several of his passes, they were just a little bit off so it wasn't, so guys weren't able to just catch and shoot right away. And he just, he looked a little bit sloppy. But, um, so, and that was really, honestly, that was really the only downside to his game last night. It says passes were sloppy, whether it be the resulting turnovers or just the fact that his passes were sloppy, even when they weren't resulting in turnovers. But, um, all in all, though, he really, Looked good. He looked right. So he should be fine going forwards. Then I'm not going to be worried about him. Uh, so about the way the game ended, um, a couple of things, I suppose. And I said this in my recap of the game, but whatever, I'll say it again. Um, the second-to-last possession where Avery Bradley, where first Tobias Harris um, tried to drive, didn't get it, pass it out. Avery Bradley tried to drive, ran into his man. I think it was Drew Holiday, but I don't remember for sure. But ran into his man and then ended up kind of puking up an ugly shot. Um, first off, I'm totally fine with the fact that Sam Van Gundy decided not to call a timeout. Um, that's generally what he's gone with, and there have been times where it's worked. Uh, it's I Basically, I don't know. You could probably, I suppose it'd be possible to go back and you know, chart it out and see exactly how well that has worked and how well that hasn't worked. But that's that's what he's done pretty consistently. So I'm not going to worry too much about that. Uh, I would say that perhaps without Reggie Jackson, um, I'd lean a little bit more towards maybe trying to call a timeout and run an out-of-bounds play just because of the fact that Reggie Jackson remains, um, even though Tobias Harris has been passing better recently, Reggie Jackson remains your best, like, just create something out of nothing guy. And, you know, it, it it looked like they didn't really know what to do in that situation, which, you know, that's a rescue run by not calling a timeout. But so, essentially, I would maybe lean a little bit more towards trying to call a timeout without Reggie Jackson just because of the fact that the main guy that you want to have the ball to just try and create something isn't there to do it. But... Regardless, that's pretty much been Sam Van Gundy's approach to that the whole time he's been with the Pistons, and so I'm not going to rag on him for that. That's his strategy, and I don't think that in the end it really makes a whole lot of difference either way. Um, My guess is that in the long run, that will even out more or less. Um, The bigger problem really was Avery Bradley's decision to shoot the ball there. Uh, I don't know exactly how much time was left, but there was enough that there was he did not need to force up that shot. Um, he should have just stopped, passed the ball out. They should have reset and tried to actually run something. Um, Tobias Harris, for what it's worth, also didn't make an exactly uh, 
a great move by just immediately trying to bull into the lane and then stopping and doing that jump pass thing. Um, I would have preferred them to, you know, just sort of set up and let Tobias Harris try and take someone off the dribble or whatever. But, um, yeah, that was, that was a big mistake by Avery Bradley. Just, there was no reason for him to take that shot. It, there was plenty of time left on the clock. That was not even remotely a good look. So he should have just held on to it and passed it out and tried to create something else after that. Um, the very last possession, I'm less upset with Avery Bradley about, and more upset with Stan Van Gundy about, um, and because he just got outcoached on that possession. And that's, that's happened a couple times before at the end of games with um, inbounding when Ishmith is on the floor. Ishmith should not be on the floor in that situation when you only need, when you need a three. That's the only option. Um, he shouldn't be on the floor. He shouldn't be inbounding the ball or anything. The Because you need a three, and Ishmith does not shoot threes, the Pelicans were like, okay, we're not going to guard Ishmith. Literally, we are going to totally ignore him. And they had an extra guy then to defend the action. The Pistons ran. And uh, even so, like, even after Ishmith passed the ball and he came out, they still didn't guard him because it's like he's not going to be able to hit a three. So Ishmith should not have been the one doing that. Um, that was a mistake by Stan Van Gundy. And I I don't know, maybe Avery Bradley could have tried to do something, but he kind of had the ball in the corner, and he at that point you kind of have to shoot it. So I'm not as worried about that for Avery Bradley. I think that was more so a strategical mistake by um, by Stan Van Gundy. So and in the end, it's just it's rough to lose a close game like that, but you you, you kind of got to just live with it. In the end, so um, I, I I'd like to talk just for a second about the um, Pelicans big men and the way that that um, really hurts teams, particularly the Pistons, and they've had a very effective offense all year. And one of the big the big reasons for that is Demarcus Cousins, because Cousins is a sort of killer combination of that. He is this big bruising inside scorer, while also being a good outside shooter. He's a better outside shooter than Anthony Davis is, at least from three-point range. And so the end result is that you have to have your center guard DeMarcus Cousins. Like, that is absolutely not an option. Like, you know, if you think Anthony Davis was having an easy go of things against Tobias Harris, just imagine what DeMarcus Cousins would be doing. And so, even though DeMarcus Cousins was, like, moping and totally out of the game for most of the night, even though he was like that, his simple presence on the floor messed with the Pistons so much because Andre Drummond has to respect DeMarcus Cousins' ability to shoot the basketball from three, and the end result is that Anthony Davis is just getting free reign in the paint constantly over a smaller Tobias Harris, and so are other guys on back cuts and such because Andre Drummond, particularly this season, has made good improvements as an off-ball help side um, rim protector. And he's done a really good job of being able to um, sort of sort of diagnose which stuff is just the fluff and sort of see where the ball is going. He's been really good at that. And DeMarcus Cousins made it so as he couldn't do that. He couldn't be there to sort of clean up on backdoor cuts and that sort of thing. And it just, the Pistons could not hold up without him, him down there to do that. And it's just, it's a huge problem for a lot of teams. And it's a little disappointing that Anthony Tolliver wasn't any more effective, but it's just the reality is that's something that the Pelicans do to pretty much everybody because, and, you know, that's one of the examples of why 
um, the Pelicans sort of zagging while the league is zigging is effective because of the fact that with the league going smaller and faster, power forwards, most power forwards in the NBA today are not even remotely rim protectors, which would not have been the case, you know, whatever, 10 years ago or however, and you wouldn't even need to go 10 years ago, honestly. But, you know, however many years you want to go back, most power forwards were able to protect the rim at least a little bit. That's really not as much the case in today's NBA. So the end result is if you can pull Andre Drummond or whoever the opposing team center out of the paint, the opposing, the center is really the only guy who's a good rim protector often on a lot of teams. So if you can really pull him out of the paint and have some other guys who can really attack the paint, then you're going to be in major trouble for a lot of teams. So that's just the reality of the situation. And it's the reason why the Pelicans are so good offensively. And... You know, I mean, Stan Van Gundy ripped on guys' effort a lot, and there was a lack of effort. The fact that they got beat on so many backdoor cuts and in transition, especially early in the game, I mean, there isn't a good excuse for that, really. Uh, regardless of the situation and the scheme, you just, you've got to do better than that. But a big part of it also is just the fact that the Pelicans are a really good defensive, not defensive team, <laughs> sorry, really good offensive team, and they give those sorts of problems to a lot of different teams. So, yeah, that's last night. Um, or not last night, I suppose. By the time this goes up, it'll be two nights ago. That's the Pelicans game. That's what I'll say. Um, I have a very short rant. I know I've talked about this on the show before, but um, once again, been circulating around is um, the, quote, ineffectiveness of pis- of the dribble handoffs by the Pistons. Um, I don't remember what the exact numbers are. I don't have it up right now. But basically the point is, so last year everyone complained about the Pistons' post-ups. They were really ineffective. I think they scored like .88 points per possession Excuse me, on post-ups last year, and they largely replaced that with dribble handoffs. And the Pistons are scoring like .84 or something like that, points per possession, off of dribble handoffs this year. And that's been cited as this huge problem, okay, and, you know, oh, look at this, they're not, it doesn't help anything, Stanford Goody's a bad coach, yada, 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 okay, so there are some very real complaints that can be made about the motion offense, there are some real complaints that can be made about Stanford Gundy, the way that he's instituted the motion offense, um, most notably things like have Avery Bradley pull up for less long twos, um, perhaps have Avery Bradley just in general do less, um, have Tobias Harris do more, try and generate more threes, try and be more aggressive attacking the hoop, um, have a little bit less sort of fluff actions that don't really do anything, try and make all of your actions more dangerous, etc., etc., okay? There is a discussion to be had about how effective the motion offense is as a whole. The Pistons' offense this year is ranked 19th in the NBA at 104 points per 100 possessions. It's, you know, I it's not hard to discover. It's slightly below average, it's fairly mediocre, it, We that's a conversation that can definitely be had. However, to suggest that, once again, I know that I have said this before, but it's kind of, I'll be honest, it's gotten on my nerves, um, because this has been passed around largely at the hands of a guy that is somewhat reputable among a lot of Pistons fans, and when you make that comparison, um, and act like those dribble handoffs exist in as much of a vacuum as Andre Drummond's post-ups did last year. 
Because the thing is, Andre Drummond's post-ups last year, once again, I've talked about this a billion times, but we're doing it again, because apparently some people can't grab, really grasp it. So Andre Drummond's post-ups were such a problem last year because no one bothered to double-team him, so you're never creating other looks for other people or even starting sort of being able to start other actions off Andre Drummond post-ups. When people fouled him, he couldn't do anything there, and those are actually the two best ways you can generate offense out of post-ups. Is that to be good enough that you are drawing double teams or draw fouls? Those are how you have effective post-ups. So essentially, when they would dump it into Andre Drummond, they actually were almost throwing away a possession. That's actually factual. Because you're not he's not going to score directly out of it effectively enough, and you're not going to be able to generate other offense off of it. Okay? Dribble handoffs are not happening in a vacuum. The Pistons are one of the better backdoor cutting teams in the NBA, and they are way and that is a direct result of the handoffs, right? There are all sorts of actions that the Pistons run off of the dribble handoffs that don't actually get counted as the dribble handoffs. The comparison I made would be to compare it to a team establishing the run game in football so as you can hit them with a play-action pass. So even if your running game is not necessarily all that effective, you just need to try and make it effective enough that the safeties start to creep up a little bit, and then you can hit teams with a play-action pass. It's the same sort of deal with the dribble handoffs, right? And, you know, it's funny because the dribble handoffs so far this year have been worse by this reasoning than the post-ups were last year. And yet still somehow, the Pistons this season have a more effective offensive rating by a pretty wide margin than last year. They have a better assist percentage than last year. They have a better true shooting percentage than last year. They're playing at a better pace than last year. They're shooting almost comically better from three than last year. Their offense is better in pretty much every single way than it was last year. The only spot where the Pistons are not pretty significantly improved offensively this year on last year is in their assist-to-turnover ratio, which makes sense because when you have the ball with your point guards a ton, you're not going to have as many turnovers because there's less passing. That's always a result of doing lots of of emotion offense is that you're going to tend to have a few more turnovers. That's a natural result of it, okay? So... To suggest, then, that the dribble handoffs are just as bad and just as ineffective, in fact, even worse, because that's what the numbers say, after all, displays one of two things. Either it shows that you have such a total lack of understanding of the offense that you should probably sit this one out and close your mouth, or you actually do understand that it doesn't happen in a vacuum, and you're being purposefully dishonest just to try and get your hot take tweet out there. Either way, you should probably shut up about it. So, just a thought. You know, don't purposefully mislead people, or maybe you should find another line of work, because you must not understand how, like, basketball offenses work. Either way, that's just my opinion. Just something that I was thinking of there. So, yeah, there's a rant. Um, The big news from the last couple of days with the Pistons is um coming out of a Woj article. Um about the trade season that is currently sort of in the early stages, and the Pistons were mentioned in that. Um, And so there were three things that were said about them. First off, they were said, they were listed under the section titled, I don't remember exactly what it was titled, I think it was titled, Looking for Wing Help, um, which essentially means they're looking for a wing. 
Um, secondly, they were said to be one of the more aggressive teams on the trade market. Thirdly, um, they were linked directly in the article, said linked directly to Evan Fournier, that they pursued him earlier in the year. But it also said that those talks have mostly fallen through. So there's a few things that I'll say about that. So first off, on the um, the Pistons being one of the more aggressive teams at the tra- on the trade market, um, that doesn't surprise me. I don't think that should really surprise anybody, honestly. Um, they didn't make a trade last year, of course, but the Pistons sent... I'm, okay, I guess since Dan Van Gundy's arrived, um, one of the things I don't think anyone really would do a whole lot of criticizing of as far as um, the front office is that they've done a good job of sort of information gathering. Um, there's been a lot of talk about how the Pistons have one of the largest front offices in the NBA. Uh, they send out they send out a lot of feelers. They are going to know what their guys are worth. They are going to look under every rock. Um, that's how you get Tobias Harris for table scraps. That's how you get Reggie Jackson for table scraps. That's how you snag Marcus Morris and Reggie Bullock for a protected second round pick, right? Like that's how a lot of these moves that he's been able to make have happened. Um, they very clearly do that. And you hear it from a lot of different people that, oh, the Pistons are always talking to everybody about every trade. Like, they come up all over the place because of the fact that they pretty clearly are very proactive about looking out for trades to try and make the team better, and it makes sense. Um, With his improvement this year, Andre Drummond is pretty close to um, that sort of you're not going to trade him under really any circumstances tier. Uh, he's not quite there yet, but he is pretty close. But other than him, you know, there's no one on the team that is so good that you are not that you wouldn't trade for anything. Essentially, um, I'd be hesitant to trade Tobias Harris. Still, I wouldn't want to trade Luke Kennard. Um, you know, I'm basically obviously everybody has a certain amount of value, but Andre Drummond with his improvement this year, I'd say. He's been proved enough that he is a legit franchise cornerstone player. He may not, but he's not quite like, he's not quite on the level of, you know, Giannis, um, uh, you know, Kevin Durant, whatever. He's not quite on that top level where it's like, this is our guy, we've got him, we're not trading him for anything. He's not quite there, but he's close. So you're not trying to trade Andre Drummond at this point. But anyone else could probably be improved upon. That's just the reality of the situation. So they're being proactive. Um... And that's something that they've done since Stan Van Gundy's arrived. So I wouldn't read a whole lot into that, other than that the Pistons haven't changed their philosophy. Um, as far as the wing help and the trade and the potential trade for Evan Fournier, um, there's a couple things that I think about that, and that's is mostly speculation, because obviously I have no inside sources myself. Um, my guess is that that tr- those trade talks happened before Reggie Jackson got hurt. Um, because then it makes a lot more sense why they would be pr- aggressively pursuing um, Evan Fournier. So, remember, before Jackson gets hurt, what was the main thing people were saying to some degree or another? The biggest hole the Pistons have... Now, people were also bringing up backup center, but other than backup center, biggest hole the Pistons have, they need a proper small forward. Um, that's maybe less true with the way Reggie Bullock has played so far since being a starter, but that's another thing. Basically, biggest hole, small forward, right? That's the thing a lot of people are saying. So, if you think of that, then the Pistons probably said, probably agree, because, you know, they're not stupid. They can see our biggest problem is small forward, in the starting lineup at least. 
So they looked at, they probably made a list of small forwards, and my guess is Evan Fournier would be pretty close to the top of that list as far as guys that would be potentially gettable at least. Um, you know, because like, it's like obviously Kevin Durant would be higher up on your list, but there's no way you're getting Kevin Durant. So as far as guys that would be potentially gettable, but also good, he'd be pretty close to the top of the list. So my guess is they made an effort to try and trade for him. Um, one thing that Woj said in the article is that it proves very difficult to make that trade without including Reggie Jackson's contract. My guess is, once again, and this is why I think that this these talks happened before Reggie Jackson got hurt, my guess is that that is not actually a, the Magic didn't want to take Reggie Jackson's contract as much as I don't think the Pistons were trying to trade Reggie Jackson at that point. I think that they were trying to pull another fast one on a team where they get a guy for table scraps and make their team much better, essentially. Right? Um, so I think that they were trying to trade for Evan Fournier while keeping the rest of their starting lineup intact. And that would likely mean a third team involved, potentially. Um, the only other contract that's big enough to get you close there is John Luer, which would mean you're dumping Luer somewhere. Uh, I don't know if the Magic have any interest in him or not. There's a lot of variables that would have to happen. But basically, my guess is that that's actually the holdup. The Pistons did not want to did not want to fill a hole at small forward by creating another hole at point guard. Obviously, they could potentially take on Evan Fournier with, I mean, not Evan Fournier. They could potentially take back um, uh, Alfred Payton, which there'd be something ironic about that if Alfred Payton, Evan Fournier, and Tobias Harris all were on the same team again. But that's another thing altogether. Um, but I actually think that's more so, more or less what happened there. I don't think the Pistons were trying to get rid of Reggie Jackson. I think they're trying to find a creative way um, to make their team much better without giving up a lot. And so my guess is that they will stay aggressive on the on the trade market, um, but just in the fact that they're going to be proactive, I suppose, is actually probably a more accurate way to look at it. Um, even if they like the team they've got, I think that they would be proactive in trying to find something because this team can get better. There's no question about that. Even if they were 100% healthy right now, this team is able to get better. So they are trying to find something. Even if they don't come out with something, they're going to look under every rock and they're going to exhaust all possibilities. I think that's something that this front office is pretty well shown. Um, as far as Fournier specifically, I like him a lot as a player. Um, it would depend on what you give up for him. I'd be a little bit... Um, the one name that was linked to that was Luke Kennard. I'd be hesitant to give up Kennard for him. Um, it's sort of a clashing of a couple of things. So on one hand, I think that Evan Fournier right now is probably about as good as the ceiling for Luke Kennard, or at least fairly close. Um, Kennard, I, obviously you don't want to put a hard ceiling on a guy, but if Kennard, basically the thought process is, if Luke Kennard ends up being as good as Evan Fournier is now, that would be a pretty that would be very successful for him. I'd say Evan Fournier is a really good player. He can score. He can really shoot. He plays decent defense. He's not a great defender, but he plays some defense. Like he's a good player. Um, but on the other hand, Fournier is a lot more expensive, and there is value in having rotation guys that are not expensive. And Luke Kennard and Reggie Bullock have sort of combined to be 
the only guys the Pistons have that are rotation players that are not expensive. And also Stanley Johnson, I suppose. But So you, I'd be hesitant to give him up. But um, it's sort of a clashing of those two things. But just purely as far as fit, I think Fournier would be a really good fit. He can really shoot the ball. Um, if they got him and kept the rest of the starting lineup intact. So let's just say, all right, we're going to go into a theoretical, okay? Let's say Reggie Jackson is going to come back on the positive end, all right? So he's going to come back within the two months or whatever since his injury. He's going to be healthy. He's going to be good to go, all right? Let's say that happens, and they trade for Evan Fournier. So the starting lineup is intact. If that happens, then they have officially successfully gotten a true sort of, you know, one-in, four-out offense. Evan Fournier is a legit shooter. Avery Bradley is a legit shooter. Tobias Harris now is a legit shooter. Reggie Jackson is a so-so shooter, but he's a good enough one. They have officially achieved that. And Evan Fournier would give um, a really kind of much-needed, off-the-bounce sort of shot creation that would really help the Pistons, I think. Um, there will be at least, I, It depends on how they use him exactly, but I think that that would be good. Um, the main question really is, how much are you giving up for him? I'd be hesitant to give up Kennard. I'd think about it, but I'd be hesitant to. Um, as much as it pains me to say it, Reggie Bullock would probably be a good chip for that. Honestly, Reggie Bullock is likely to be a very strong chip for the Pistons, um, as long as he keeps playing this well, at least, is likely to be a very strong chip that the Pistons could use in trade negotiations because he's pretty much well-proved that he can play and he's on a really cheap contract. So um, that would be a guy that several teams would be interested in, my guesses, at least. Um, so he's definitely would be a chip. And if you're trading for Evan Fournier, you probably don't really need Reggie Bullock so much anymore. Stanley Johnson is likely to be a chip in this. Um, he probably doesn't have a ton of value at this point, but he has some still, I'm sure. Uh, it's just, it depends on what you give up for him. So I would say as long as you're not more or less gutting your bench, um, that'd be a pretty good trade. But it's le- it's harder to say now that Reggie Jackson's health is in question. Because I don't, if, if you don't have a proper starting point guard, which once again, we all love Ish Smith, he's not really an ideal starting point guard. There's not much question about that. If you don't have that, I don't know that Evan Fournier is good enough to really push you over a big hump. If you have a proper starting point guard, whether it is Reggie Jackson or you trade for someone else, and then you go get Evan Fournier, then I actually think that he makes a real difference, essentially. Um, Just because of the fact that he's not sort of, he's not good enough that he can be like a real hub of the offense, and right now the Pistons are still kind of lacking that without Reggie Jackson. And But I think that if you've got a proper point guard, I think he would be awesome. So that's my take on, that's my take on that. Um, so just a couple more things before we finish up. Um, one thing we'll touch on again is Dwight Bikes and Eric Moreland, the Pistons' summer league superstars who they've picked up and have both found themselves playing real roles. Um, Dwight Bikes, I'm a little bit hesitant, but he's been impressive so far. Um, the thing that's worrying is that it's just he makes his living as an undersized point guard who hits tough shots. And, <laughs> uh, ooh, excuse me. And that is a tough living to make in the NBA. Just that's the reality. And 
right now through the seven games he's played this year, he's played what three or four as the full time backup. Um, he's got a true shooting percentage of fifty five point eight percent. His true shooting percentage in the G League in ten games this year was like fifty three percent. So it just if he could stay above fifty three percent, he can make it work. If he falls below that, it starts to be dicey. So I'm cautiously optimistic that he's for real, but it's hard to say for sure. Um, the one thing that bodes well for his longevity and steam power is that he plays defense. So if he can keep playing like he has so far, it will be a godsend, and it also could potentially end up shaking up the Pistons' trade assets a little bit because he could potentially be one, or you could potentially look at moving Ish Smith if you wanted to, if Dwight Bikes continues to prove that he's actually a capable back at point guard. Um, I'm not saying that that's necessarily ideal, but it's just something to keep in mind. Um, as far as Eric Morling goes, he's very limited offensively, and that hurts the Pistons. Um, he's a decent passer, but he does not score. He's not an effective roller to the rim. Um, he's just he's not a good offensive player. He makes your offense worse. But he plays hard defensively. His ability to pass is worth something on offense. And he's gotten better at playing in control on defense, not quite so wild. And I think that that's helped him a lot. So all in all, I'd say it's okay. You deal with it. Um, he's not ideal as your backup center, but he's he's passing, I suppose. He's getting a passing grade as a backup center still. So, yeah. Um, the le- last thing would be probably tonight when this gets put up. Um, the Pistons will be playing the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, the Nets, of course, are without Jeremy Lin, D'Angelo Russell, um, and uh, Damari Carroll will probably be out. And Nick Stauskas might be out as well. Either of those last two might play. Uh, there, well, our our friend Spencer Dinwiddie is there, which will be fun, of course. Uh, whew, my nose suddenly got real stuffy. Um, he's been playing really, really well there, which makes me happy and sad at the same time. Of course, the Nets. I mean, the Pistons played the Nets. Have played the Nets before. The Nets play at a really fast pace. They shoot a lot of threes, regardless of whether the person is a good three-point shooter or not. But they mostly have guys who can shoot threes. Um, and, you know, at least a little bit. And they shoot a ton of them. They play really fast. So they're a team that they're not all that good, but they're tough. And for what it's worth, they're also a pretty entertaining team. And so at the very least, it should be a pretty fun game to watch. Uh, a big question for the Pistons is whether or not... Um, Avery Bradley's jump shot is going to be falling now going forwards. If that's the case, then I really like the Pistons' chances in this one. If he actually, if the second half last night or on Monday night was actually an anomaly, then I like the Pistons' chances less. But either way, I think the Pistons will have a pretty decent chance in this one. But the Nets are not pushovers, so that's that. Um, That's all for now. We're at 35 minutes, so it's a pretty good time. Um, Go Pistons. Stay beautiful, everybody.